0: Welcome, everyone, to the Privacy Whisperer live talk. So today I'm here with Catherine Jamu. She's a principal data scientist at ThoughtWorks. And she's also the author of the book Practical Data Privacy. And please, everyone, stay until the end because we are going to give away three copies of the book, of the ebook. So stay until the end. We are going to uh, have a, some uh, book giveaway. Uh, she's an internationally recognized data scientist, programmer, and lecturer. And we are here today to discuss. Practical Data Privacy, so some topics around privacy engineering, uh, machine learning, and how to navigate some of the challenges, and I, I, I think, and usually in the audience, we have lots of legal practitioners, so I, I'm so happy to have Catherine today. <laughs> uh, she's from, um, I don't want to say she's she's going to tell us a bit about her journey. She's not only from the engineering technical side, she's also a journalist, so she has a very uh, interesting and colorful background uh but this is the discussion today so how how to navigate privacy enhancing technologies machine learning um managing privacy programs and etc uh i'm Luisa yarovsky and please i invite you to subscribe to the privacy whisper if you want to get informed about the next events and also to read my weekly analysis on what's wrong with technology and how we can make it better uh so subscribe to the privacy whisper and let's get started uh if so everyone uh don't forget to stay until the end so we are going to give away again the practical data privacy catherine's books uh stay until the end uh so let's start so first as i said i want i think uh, catherine's journey personal journey is very interesting and and i also always think that to understand the book where it's it's nice and it's important to, to look at the author and what, what's the, what the, what are the challenges that the author has been facing. So I'd love you to share a little bit with the audience. So I, you, you have a, you studied, you work with journalism and with technology more generally also design. So mm-hmm. what took you, uh, where did you come from and uh, how did you arrive to practical data privacy?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, it's a bit long, so I'll I'll try to (laughs) figure out how to say it short. So um, I'm originally American. I live in Germany now. I grew up in Los Angeles, California. So hello to the other Californians. I don't know if any of you are joining from L.A., but hello. Um, So fellow Angelinos. And um, I studied, I was very good at math. I studied computer science in school, um, I was fairly turned off by computer science in those days, so it had very little to do at math at that time, um, lots of Java applets. If anybody suffered through that era of computer uh, science, um, I was there, and I really, my love was with math. Um, so I actually switched, studied political science, uh, graduated with a degree in political science, um, met some amazing professors, um, did some statistical studies of the war in Iraq, which was happening at that time, and then... Um, I went and I taught school, um, so I taught at school for a while, and then I went and I decided I would get a journalism degree, and I did data journalism for a while, and then data journalism kind of drew me back into computers, and I went and worked at a startup with some ex-Googlers doing NLP things, uh, natural language processing, so, um, which was then uh, having a resurgence and was working in tech in the LA area for a while, and then I, um, I kind of just quit. Uh, I was really burnt out and I moved to Germany and I didn't know I was immigrating, but I did immigrate. And um, I luckily found some really cool data science work here when I landed and then fell into machine learning work when deep learning had a resurrection and um, got involved in all of that here. And I was doing still natural language processing, still near and dear to me, uh, working with text language. Um, I think it's really fun. Um, and because of that, I got, uh, worried about privacy issues. I mean, I think I was already starting to be worried when I had moved to Berlin was around the time that the Snowden leaks came out and that was very concerning to me. And then on top of that, then to see kind of what we were feeding machine learning algorithms with started to get more and more sensitive data, particularly text data, um, and, I got concerned that maybe we shouldn't be doing this, or maybe if so, we should ask people's permission, and maybe we should figure out how to get consent. And I didn't have all those words then for it, but I learned some kind of the legal side along the way. I'm by no means any lawyer, but because of working with, with folks, with folks like the folks maybe listening today. Um, they taught me a lot about the law. I teach them a little bit about technology and we, we find a better way together. And I'm really happy to to be here and to be working on what I would consider potentially the most important piece of responsible AI.
0: And, and and picking up from there, I think your book reflects a lot this idea that you're really bridging two fields because I think your data journalism experience is amazing because of this communication aspect and privacy suffers from a communication crisis of uh, it's difficult to 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 show to the broad whoever is not an expert or who is not reading books and and reading articles and seeing the damage and and risks and the law and what companies are not doing. Sometimes it's difficult to explain, right? People say, oh, "But what? It's just an ad. You just compare, like delete." <laughs> so you really does you really do a great work in this uh, communication. I think it's one of the biggest uh, challenges in privacy. Uh, and, and also picking up from what you said about, the, about, from your journey to the book. And the last time, so Catherine's book is Practical Data Privacy. And last time we spoke, we, we, we were talking about that. We were discussing this aspect of where, when we, we talk about privacy engineering and, and why, is, is so, uh, is, why is it not so, why is it not the the basis of engineering? So why is it not everywhere? And every engineer has brought training on that. Very
1: and I uh, remember
0: Catherine, Telling me that it, it sometimes is, is 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 complicated and there's no easy way to to learn and to apply and to implement and, and so that that's where where I see her book coming and it's, it's super valuable and, and I I wanted to hear from you, Catherine, also, and to to share with the audience. So, what do you see from from your journey and from your perspective the challenges in in, in teaching privacy in implementing privacy? So, and and where did the idea of the book came from?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, the more I, so I first got involved in in thinking through the privacy problem from a machine learning point of view in about 2017, opportunistic uh, because 2018 GDPR went into effect and there was a lot of debate of what effect it would have on data and data science and machine learning, particularly within Europe. Um, so I've been able to see quite a bit of that conversation um, but I got involved because I was worried about the ethical side of machine learning, and it's been interesting to see that conversation evolve globally um, over time as well. Now, I think it's much more on people's minds, maybe also particularly with the with the new new emergence of AI tools that I think more people use now than before. Um, but I think machine learning was always used a lot, and maybe people didn't know how much it was being used, and maybe now it's just more obvious it's being used. But I think we don't learn much about privacy when you t- when you go to school for computer science. You might have an ethics in computer science class, but a lot of it might be around something like copyright infringement, or might be around um, other types of things. Which is not to say that that's dissociated from the privacy issues, particularly when we think about large-scale web scraping, but you might it might be like very theoretical questions and very little is taught um, on privacy engineering at least um, up until recently. Now, recently that has started to shift. Um, I've actually talked with some colleagues who now have people that come out of school and they might have heard about things like homomorphic encryption. They might've heard about differential privacy. Um, They might've heard about different other methods, maybe even federated learning. Um, And this is really exciting because it's starting to show that those technologies have now been around long enough. They're starting to be taught in schools. But for many people, and also many people who are already in the field, who are not going back to school, um, the question is, how do you actually learn these technologies, and how do you stay up to date on these technologies so that you can also be up to date with your data engineering or your data science or your machine learning skills? because these uh, these issues are not going away, as you know, as you know, as your important work with the newsletter shows, The risks are increasing and the legal landscape is changing. And this is something that I think uh, particularly data scientists across the world should be curious about for their career and their future. And so I wrote the book because I thought to myself, there needs to be a text for people that are already practitioners, that are already working in data so that they can learn these things. They don't have to go back to school. They can learn the stuff, they can experiment. Um, There's a bunch of code examples in the book. So they also have some some code to play with, to learn with. And my hope is that it's just a taster and maybe they get more interested and they decide, okay, I actually want to specialize or I want to figure out how to make it work with this particular type of machine learning. And that's my hope is to kind of inspire folks to, you know, trigger the curiosity in their brain and have them Um, Be curious, like me, uh, what would it mean to actually do these things in a privacy-respecting way, in a privacy-aware way? And what would it mean in how we talk to users and how we talk to people about our work if we were to actually integrate privacy engineering as a core piece of everything that we do? And talking
0: about curiosity, there was uh, something I I didn't say before that I was going to ask that, but I I was reading your book and I noticed that you always prefer the the term machine learning. You never use AI only once. And I I check artificial intelligence. I didn't find one mention of AI, and of course, it, it's you're using the the. So what? And and I, I uh, on the opposite. And whenever I, I we discuss it, I use AI because I know we, you say AI like, like the jokes, right? And Whatever you have to, to feel AI, whatever. But I, mm-hmm. I prefer to use AI because I think people that that's the hype and that's what people learn. So I want to hear from you. So what, what what's what's bad about AI?
1: I mean, I guess. Um... So AI, the term is like, I guess, the what people are trying to build with machine learning. So what we're trying to build with machine learning is the human-like intelligence that we have trained uh, via a variety of architectures of, of different types of machine learning um, algorithms or, or types of machine learning. And I guess I come from machine learning. I mean, that's what I've been doing for for a while now. <laughs> so for more than 10 years. And so that means that um, machine learning is potentially a way that you can build AI. I would argue, could we call do can we really call it AI? Is it actually intelligent? Uh, what do we mean when we say intelligent? Um, what do we mean when we say artificial intelligence, right? Like how much is natural intelligence that has been um, at some point and in some points over memorized um, or overfit by a machine learning algorithm or architecture? I think there's maybe some that's maybe why I stick to like a specific definition that I could name, which is machine learning, which is well documented for now many decades. and Eventually, yeah. Sometimes I talk about AI too because I get invited to talk about AI, and then I probably say machine learning a lot. And people are like, "Why isn't she talking about AI?" And I, I don't know, but you know, I understand why you would use the term AI because I think that is is used a lot now to describe you know large scale deep learning models or um, LLMs or multimodal models. So large deep learning models um, like what powers ChatGPT. Yes, yeah,
0: certainly. I, I use for the marketing, not for the technical aspect. So I, I just wanted to say it's a it's a, per, it's a conscious choice to, yeah. to do with AI and use yeah. machine learning. Yeah, I was expecting For better or
1: worse, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And,
0: and now talk a little bit about some of the topics. I think many people here in the audience, they are privacy professionals that work more in the legal side, let's say not necessarily lawyers, but work a lot with legislation and GDPR and implementation. And one of the topics uh, from your book is this, uh, this: this the idea of PII, so personally identifiable information, and pseudonymization. I always say it's wrong. Can you help me? Pseudonymization, right? Pseudonymization, yeah, yeah, yeah. Pseudonymization. Well, I, I'm horrible with this word. And anonymization. So, and and there is always, at least when, so while writing my PhD, I remember a paper by Paul Ohm, and he said that anon- basically anonymization doesn't exist, right? So, every, with the existing uh, techniques, anything can be de anonymized. So, I remember having, as as a lawyer, Never tried. Never uh, like put put so much weight on anonymization because it will not sustain. So, somehow some hacker or it will be possible to de anonymized. So it will not be a guarantee that something will be. And, and I want to hear from you. It also has changed. So since I, I, I started writing, may, maybe something has changed. And you talk a lot about uh, different techniques. So how how would you? Uh, what are those definitions today? So how can? And, and the GDPR has some mention. Mentions uh, pseudonymization as a recommended practice, not not an anonymization, but pseudonymization. GDPR will still be applicable, but it's a recommended practice. And also for 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 everyone in the audience here that is mostly focused on the legal aspects. So, you, from your side as a, as a privacy engineer, how can someone be comfortable to say this is pseudonym, pseudonymized or is anonymization possible? So how do we navigate those terminologies? And, and and today with the existing technology and and, and what's possible and, and how, and when someone comes to you and say, hey, this is all anonymized, should you be skeptical and say, he doesn't understand what he's talking about?
1: Very much so, uh, the, the last one. Um, so like, I think a way to reason about this is like to think about information. So when we have information and we write something down on a computer, it is stored in some sort of uh, form. So like at the end of the day, it's stored in ones and zeros most of the time. And that's encoded in something that that we can then read, right? And um, this means that this information exists. And if information exists, that means that um, it's not anonymous, right? And so there's this tension Um, pure anonymization would be never to store anything. So like if we really wanted anonymous or if we really wanted data not to exist, we wouldn't collect any data, we wouldn't store it, or if so, we would keep it very ephemerally. So data minimization, classic data minimization, and then we would get rid of it as soon as we could. That would be the closest to anything resembling anonymization. And this is Basically, the ground principle of what Cynthia Dwork and numerous other researchers who formed the idea of differential privacy, what they were working with, because they said to themselves, like, if we release any information, like any information whatsoever, there's a chance somebody could connect it. Like you said, there's a chance that somebody says, like, okay, um, all of the people in Sao Paulo right now, which, of course, many millions, um, the average height is this. And then somebody knows, oh, Luisa is two centimeters taller than the average height of Sao Paulo right now. And so then they can immediately reverse engineer your height, right? And so there's no safe way to release information, even in bulk, because we don't know what other information somebody might have and they might connect it. And we don't know if somebody has been following you or figuring out something, and then they might be able to connect it and, and learn something new about you. And so the principle of differential privacy, which is now seen by many also legal experts as kind of maybe the, the gold standard of anonymization is can we measure how much information we're letting through? And can we measure it down to a person-by-person level And can we keep it very small so that there's always some uncertainty about how real the information is? That's maybe, so maybe you're, uh, maybe when we release the average height, maybe it's not exactly the average height. So then you have plausible deniability and you can say, well, that's not actually my height. Or you can say, I wasn't actually in Sao Paulo that day. Or you can say any number of things. Um, I've shrunk, I've yet changed, <laughs> or whatever I grew. And so the idea of adding an element of uncertainty um, and an element of random chance to the way that we respond, Is how we now would recommend from a technical point of view. How do we do anonymization? And the most stringent is differential privacy. And the old ways, like you might have heard of k-anonymity and so forth, they've been continuously proven to be quite broken. So most often they involve you adding way too much noise to get the results um, that you need, or they involve uh, they can be quite invasive and dangerous when used. when when used without some extra protections that need to be done. That said, there's now been new research. So, a lot of people went and said, okay, differential privacy is the way we're going to do it. Okay, that's great. Differential privacy has mainly been tested in releasing figures. So, it was used in the U.S. Census. Um, Differential privacy is used in the latest Wikipedia release. Differential privacy has been used in a bunch of different places to release numbers publicly. In what we would say is a safe, as safe and responsible way with regard to privacy that we know right now from a from a data scientist perspective, but there's now been people saying, "Okay, now we're going to train models with differential privacy." Okay, when the math works out. We can add some math to the ways that we train algorithms. Then the model we can say is differentially private, whatever that means. But in machine learning, it becomes quite difficult because let's say, for example, I want to build a large language model and I'm going to go scrape data from all over the internet. Well, I have to know how much data you can contribute in order to figure out how to randomize enough so that I don't accidentally leak too much information about you. But when we scrape the entire internet, we often don't scrape information about authorship. And we definitely, when we're training, when we're doing the rounds of training, we're sometimes mixing up data from all different disparate parts as part of our training process in what we call batches or rounds. And so it becomes quite difficult to actually reverse engineer and figure out how much data do we scrape from the privacywhisperer.com versus how much data do we scrape from your LinkedIn posts? versus how much data do we scrape from your other blog posts, from Reddit, from Twitter, from end, end, end. And so I think that it's quite dangerous when we think about how we do large-scale machine learning these days to say that we can use differential privacy to anonymize. I would argue that that would be very difficult technically to ensure and do. And from what I understand of others in my field who work in the space and are experts in differential privacy, it is often a very minimal amount of noise that is added versus when we release statistics, we can be much more meticulous about what data we've put in, um, how, how each person contributes end and end. And. and so I would say that's the best I could the best summary I can give you of differential privacy, and I think what I would consider whatever we want to call anonymization but um and then you we- think so in a, let me say, so let, yeah. just let me understand if yeah. let me see if i
0: understood correctly so in a sense you think that you it's not wrong to say it's anonymized but we should lower our expectation in what about what that means in practice yeah in this sense
1: also yeah. I mean, I, I'm very confident in the rigor and the science around differential privacy. Um, it's well thought through. It's been around now for many decades. Um, there's been some great advances. So in the book, I, I used the Tummel Analytics Library, which is a library that's been used to help Wikipedia and the U.S. Census and so on and so forth. And um, there's some really also just from a, from a math nerd perspective is very interesting math that we use to guarantee this level of plausible deniability or uncertainty in the exact answer. But despite all of those things and the fact that I'm a huge fan of it, um, we have to also know that it's not going to magically fix every single problem that we have in data. We can't just you know, slather some differential privacy on it and then say, oh, there's no more privacy risk. And I see that maybe there's some danger in saying, okay, now we have this amazing, rigorous science that we can use to measure how much information we're releasing and to try to control how much information we're releasing to protect people, which I think is really powerful. But that doesn't automatically mean, okay, let's go do it in large-scale deep learning. Oh, let's go do it in this other thing. Let's go do it in everything. We have to see, does it actually fit the privacy risk? And I think that's probably the hardest part of doing technical privacy is working mainly with folks like you and folks like the folks listening to understand, like, legally, what do we understand the privacy risk to be? What are we trying to do here? And then also model the user. So, like, what does the user actually expect? Like, does the user know that they could potentially give dangerous information to us or not? Do they have any awareness? How do we communicate with the user? And then to use things, tools like differential privacy, like many other tools, and say, what's the best fit for this actual situation? And not just say, okay, we have differential privacy. Let's use it everywhere, right? Mm
0: -hmm. And I think
1: that's... That's the hardest part of privacy engineering is mapping those in a right way,
0: uh, and also the implementation. I think well, what you're saying, right? Uh, so uh, uh, having understanding what's your goal and what are the main risks, and also, but, but coming back to differential privacy, so you mentioned so adding some randomness, right? I would say adding some noise or, or using mathematics to to make uh, to make it to add noise and make it less more anonymous or more more private. <laughs> so in this sense would it be a downside I, I i can see also people trying to advocate for privacy engineering within a company or within yeah. a, a privacy program and they, they and maybe another team another engineering team or another any a uh, stakeholder with another type of interest saying but this will uh make uh, our data uh worse or with less quality or less accurate is it true so do, do we have to how do we navigate those downsides of okay we want privacy and and this looks like a mathematical model or this this technique here adds noise or adds randomness it looks like it will help with the privacy aspect but are there downsides and how, how do, does this person, privacy engineer that's advocating, how, how do we deal or how do we think about the downsides in, in your point of view?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think that's why understanding the context is so important. So a lot of times, like people would recommend anonymization if you're going to do a public release or. Let's say you're going to do a data partnership with another company and the data is leaving the safe space of your internal company use and it's going out to another company or to the public. And then I think like the best thing that you could do is to truly analyze the privacy risk and to try to use anonymization um, whenever possible or differential privacy and to be very uh, cognizant that... There's a few things that you choose when you use differential privacy that determine, let's say the amount of uncertainty or the amount of noise versus the amount of information, right? So we have randomness and noise and we have information and there's a tension there. And we call that also a privacy utility tension in the data. So having full utility probably means full information and no privacy, and on the other hand, we have full privacy, which would probably be never collecting data at all. And where I work in data, I like working with data, I like solving problems with data. So we have to find somewhere in this t- in this balance, in this continuum. And it's not all or one, it's somewhere in between. And differential privacy is one method, but there's many other methods. And some of them have stronger impact on utility or information than others. And so when I've been in those situations and when I talk to other people that work in companies and try to convince people to do things with privacy built in, you have to, again, start looking on a case-by-case basis and say, well, how much information do we actually need to answer this question? And one of the things that we have to think about is a lot of times we have uh, error anyways in the data we collect. Like, there's a lot of things around data quality and do we actually know if the data that we collect represents reality and there's a whole other philosophical debate we could have on like can we ever measure reality exactly and if so then um how and and and. and. so we could get into those but i think what we need to understand is when we're using technologies to try to preserve privacy We are trying to protect information from being learned completely, and that's the only way that we can protect privacy to some degree. But some problems lend themselves automatically to protecting data until we need to see it. So there's a whole section of the book in a field I used to work in um, that I'm still quite passionate about around encryption. And with encryption, we don't actually destroy any information. Uh, We encrypt data. We can actually compute with encrypted data. So we can combine a bunch of encrypted data together and create uh, an answer together. And then we could all decide that it's okay when we've all computed something together for us to decrypt all together. And that that models the trust that we have in the world. So, for example, for auctions or for voting or for any number of things, we could model this also in encryption and it would keep the individual privacy. Um, in that same way to, to some degree. I mean, we could argue if you're releasing statistics, maybe we would also need differential privacy, but to, as long as it remains encrypted, it's private, right? And if we aggregate it then and we compute and we do run different algorithms with it or whatever, and then at the end we decrypt, one could argue that maybe this model's also privacy in our world, Um, how we agree when we go to the ballot box that somebody eventually does see it, but they don't know it's tied to us. And so I think there's maybe some interesting ways to also leverage privacy engineering and privacy enhancing technology to, uh, to also do things accurately, but to use the real world as an example for what is the privacy that people actually expect in this scenario and to try to figure out Do we have technology that can help us? Um, Because I think like you, I mean, I think one one exciting thing about your history and privacy is like also kind of realizing that the way that we've built technology doesn't actually model the way we expect privacy to work in the real world. And that's somewhat concerning and alarming. I love what you just said. I think I have two two follow-up questions. And, and
0: the, the, when you begin talking about this privacy utility discussion, I think it's so important. Uh, and it's a difficult conversation because the privacy team will have this, perhaps sometimes uh, even idealized view that we want pure privacy, full privacy. And I think it's It would be, I would say, impossible for a company to, to work with full private. You would not have clients. You, you have nothing. You, you'd be just the, the founders in a room, like, consenting. And <laughs> it, it, there needs to, this discussion. And I'm, I like to be a realistic person. And it's a difficult discussion. The privacy team, we, we, we have the privacy as human dignity and GDPR and foundations and principles, etc. And, and it's those are high level and can be very broad. And we and, and privacy advocates are correctly tough and want to, to to overcome challenges. And on the other side, there are sometimes, as you said, by this conversation, utility. So where do we set? Where is the the correct synchronization? And before we, I have another follow up about this. So in your personal opinion, would you would you say that is it? Would would there be any occasion where we would say here in this situation? We should compromise privacy or no? We can still achieve whatever the company wants to achieve uh, in terms of results and analytics and success with privacy. Or you would say that we have to be frank, and for in some cases, we will have to decide for if we want to have success in a certain uh, data analytics measurement, we will have to, to downgrade privacy. What do you think?
1: I think it's a, I think it's. A question probably that can't be answered generally Um, probably depends a lot on the company and and the way they're operating. But let's take a concrete example. Like, let's look at what's happening with online advertising. So, like, we can all complain about advertising, but there's a lot of people that work and live off of advertising. So if we're going to kill advertising as a business, we have to figure out, like, what's going to happen to all those people, right? So it's a human rights issue that people have jobs and whether you like online ads or not. There's a lot of people who work in the online ads and it's been an industry for a very long time. And there's some people like maybe what we want is ads that aren't creepy. Maybe what we want is ads that don't follow us around. Maybe what we want is an ad business that we can call privacy respecting that maybe is shows us interesting things but that are, that are not, you know, too specific to us, right? And so we see now that with the removal of third-party cookies, that the entire ad industry is going to have to change. That if you don't work at Google or Apple or Meta or one of the places that already has their own platform to show ads, um, your entire world is shifting right now or has already begun to shift. And so you've maybe worked in personalized ads your whole life, what are you gonna, How are you going to build personalized ads without personal data, right? And I think this is a real problem that people are now looking at and saying, well, is there a better way for us to think through personalization of ads where we're not looking at any one individual? Because at the end of the day, probably don't want to like stalk one person across the internet and just only advertise them. We want a business model that can target many, many users. And so I was recently at um, a really cool summit, I guess, uh, in spring, um, put on by the e-commerce alliance and talking through how do we do ethical advertising online? How do we um, think through intent-based? So when I go to a search engine and I search something, or even if I end up on your site and then I search something... Instead of trying to figure out where I am and how old I am and what gender I am and, and, and maybe just look at what I'm trying to search and see if you can specialize on the way that I'm talking to you, right? The way that I'm talking to the search engine on your site, or if you have a chatbot, the way that I'm talking to the chatbot, the way that I'm talking to you via email, right? Is there ways that we can... Disassociate this idea that we have to have all this PII about a person to advertise to them, and to instead give them what they're try to give them what they're asking for, and try to only collect the information in a slightly less hyper personalized way, so we can generalize it better and say, "Oh, people like you who came here looking for this product also liked these other products," and not base it on where you live, what language your browser is, et cetera, et cetera. And perhaps that will also be better advertising model in the long run because it's less based off of a practice that uh, to begin with was quite invasive. So I guess I, I use that as one example of thinking through when you're put in a situation and it's either the business or privacy, there might be a point in time to ask, is there any other way for us to do our business other than be creepy? Because nobody wants in the long run to be with it. Like there's no personal bond that your consumer will have with your company if it's just based on invasion of their privacy. That's just not not a long-term business model, I don't think. Yeah, agree, and and
0: yeah, the the advertising thing—it's—it's actually so. It's interesting to see what will happen when there will be no third-party cookies anymore. And I'm not—I'm still observing, and I don't want to have any final comment. But also the new, the new techniques that are coming up—it doesn't. It's perhaps what you're saying, right? Maybe if the end result will be creepy in any case, it doesn't matter if it's cookie, if it's a cake, if it's any other—you name it. If the end result is invasive it, it right we should not obsess uh, by the technique, the engineering part, but the end result right how, how do we impact people? And I think also uh, related to what you were talking about this discussion of your privacy utility discussion of tension uh, in, in your view, so the gdpr is is not so specific on on how you should do privacy engineering right It says like uh, the, the the efforts that are compatible with the risks, So in your view, so it's, it should be different. Should it be, should it regulate more uh, in a a more detailed or nuanced way Whether How do we do privacy engineering? Or you think it's, it's good that it's broad and it leads to best practices and to the industry standards. What's your personal view on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think like a lot of technologists like myself um, often want more guidance. Um, I think. What I what I recommended in the book, so there's, there's actually a whole chapter on working with regulation and working with lawyers in your company and, and internal policy and so forth. And I think if you're working at a company and you can write up some policy and guidelines that start to guide people, at least to the questions, maybe even a way of thinking through the problem, do I need to go to the privacy team or not? I think these can end up, technologists sometimes are very literal people and so our lawyers can be too right and so like maybe maybe that's one way where we overlap and you're like want clear guidance and i think um what i said in the book is that um if reading regulation doesn't give you clear guidance, which never will. And nor do I think maybe it's the place of the of the government to say exactly what technology a company should use or not is probably a bad idea. But um, but to start the conversation and then to have the internal privacy team, the internal legal team, if you have a, a cyber security team or an information security team, this can be the internal voice of, GDPR in the context of our business, in the context of our geographies, of the customers that we serve, maybe LGPD is more important or maybe another law is equally important, um, CPRA or something like this. And to give people concrete guidance and to start to build out safe use cases where people can test out privacy technology, where it's worthwhile to invest and to try some out, I think this is potentially the biggest message of the second half of the book is um, you have to figure out ways to practice this in your work environment. And I think um, it's fantastic to watch what's happening with the European courts, um, what will happen also with the Brazilian and Californian courts and agencies over time that via enforcement, via rulings, we start to get an idea of what is acceptable and not, but the most important voice is the voice of the privacy council internally i think and i hope that maybe some people feel inspired to (laughs) try some things out um after after this uh this podcast
0: and Mm -hmm. so some one chapter of your book i think it's very interesting i don't think my guess is that most people are not familiar with it so you discuss Uh, privacy attacks and and I love the topic and because there's this whole uh, also even memes around that of the dilemmas of privacy and security privacy has a certain set of uh, principles and 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 worldview and security has another one and then when we talk about privacy attack it looks we are really entering right the 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 security realm of there is an attacker and and I need to 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 prevent it or to, to make my my system strong and you discuss privacy attacks Uh, And I want to understand, first I think I I would like you to to tell a story or or briefly tell the audience what's it about and who are the the malicious parties. So when we, and also I, I like the idea of privacy attacks because Privacy, as we, we said in the beginning, has a communication branding problem. So when we talk about attack, maybe it's a good way to, to show that we need to, to be we need to be privacy team and not uh, because we need to have protection against this attack. So first, I think, first I, I, I think the audience would love to hear from you a little bit about what are those privacy attacks? Who are the malicious parties and, and how can we, we prevent those attacks from happening? Like really general of course people ah sorry someone was asking for the link the, can can someone please I cannot I had we, do, we cannot comment on the chat from from the studio please can someone post Catherine's book uh practical data privacy and the link to the ebook so that everyone uh, who can now yeah she has it in her hand please can someone post it on uh, the chat so yeah about, about privacy attacks I think it's a it really it was new for me when I was reading I think uh, people would love to hear about it
1: Yeah, so, I mean, privacy attacks, we can do um, kind of like what we were talking about. When we want to protect information that we release, we have to do particular mechanisms. So anytime we open information to the public uh, and that information is person-related, it doesn't even have to be PII, it can just be person-related information, we open up a potential window for a privacy attack. So one of the classic examples um, that maybe some of you are familiar with is the Netflix prize. So Netflix released data, they said it was anonymized. Um, I have a little tip in the book. If you ever release data, please don't say ever that it's anonymized because it will immediately trigger researchers who want to prove you wrong. (laughs) Just say what you did to prepare it, but don't claim it's anonymized as automatically every researcher will want to dive in. Um, And they took this Netflix data and it was a subset of all Netflix data. This was now more than 10 years ago. I I believe the attack uh, happened and they were actually able to link it to IMDB profiles. So they used a mechanism to try to find the reviews. Um, to singular uh, to like triangulate the reviews on one single reviewer and then one pseudonym in the data set. And then they did around the same ratings and around the same date. So not even exact rating, exact date. And they were able to match, like I think, a forty percent of the released uh, data um, were also in IMDB. And so with plus or minus a few days on on the accuracy, And you might think like, okay, well, they posted it on IMDb. Well, maybe this group will think differently, but a lot of people think like, oh, they posted on IMDb. It's public anyway. It's like they don't have anything to hide. Why should we protect them? But I think lawyers would uh, reason about like, what is the risk that somebody thinks um, that their full viewing history on Netflix, right? Like which was released, um, and the ones they choose to put on IMDb, maybe under a pseudonym, that those could be linked and then that those could be made public and those could potentially be identified as a real person, right? So I think the privacy risk grows um, every time we can perform a privacy attack. And I think telling people you're not allowed to use the internet, you're not allowed to go on Facebook, you're not allowed to go on LinkedIn, you're not allowed to go and do these things in order to remain safe is also not a real choice that we're giving people. And so other privacy attacks, like you can extract information from machine learning models. um, You can extract information from machine learning API endpoints. There's lots of cool, well, cool, interesting attacks to extract information on even what types of population was the machine learning model trained on. And um, one of the cool things when you think about generative AI, um, which is now kind of the, the AI that a lot of us are using is we can also try to extract information from generative AI models. And we can successfully extract also personal information um, from some types of gen AI models. And one of the things that I recommend that you do is to ask chat GPT who you are, um, pieces of work, sometimes it hallucinates, sometimes it can actually regurgitate things and... Um, I think when we, uh, when people work in very niche areas or niche areas of art, so when we use like Dali or other forms to create art in the style of A, um, and you can try some of your favorite artists, maybe some contemporary artists, or maybe some artists that just have a very smaller following than the most famous, you know, than Picasso or something like this. And we can start to ask ourselves... Um, is this the expected use in the eyes of that person? Like, at what point in time does it become a privacy issue? And I think we could have lots of long debates about that. But it's very interesting. the The field of privacy attacks continues to grow. So, when data is released, definitely um, there was a there was data release by EdX um, that was only released with k anonymity. And researchers were able to find and link the students in the edX to real profiles on LinkedIn, for example. And so there continues to be many, many, many data releases that end up leaking extra information. And sometimes that information is public, but it's maybe not public, known to be attached to a certain person. And that therein lies a lot of the privacy risk, and where the legal expertise comes in to say, okay, is this expected, or is this a breach of some some type of expected privacy or consent that a human should give.
0: I like I like very much your your approach, you name it. Uh, and, and when you're you speaking about privacy attacks, it comes to my mind a lot of contextual integrity, right, the book by Ellen Insigmal. And and I've been I teach it in my masterclass about privacy and AI. So I think I will build a connection with, with this what you're talking about. So the privacy attack is 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 a more let's say a more nuanced attack when we talk think about a cybersecurity attack would be a hacker he got a password he invaded and, and he stole all the data so this would be a typical security breach and when we talk about privacy as sometimes it's about the context so uh, one, one example and it's it's nice to talk about ai here so there's this debate now which is still unsolved about scraping right so whatever they say to train gpt3 now we are already trained they are training gpt5 but if you posted anything publicly until 2021 your information uh, was used to train chat gpt so we are really uh, our knowledge our whatever you posted on facebook publicly was used as raw material to train the system and the whole discussion about contextual privacy is the following. The, the, uh, that's what Professor Ellen Instinbaum proposed. So when you post something and, and it's really at the core of the idea of privacy, when you let's say you go to the doctor, so you share, you go to you have a specific health issue, you share very a lot of sensitive information because you want to be treated. You are in the context of that consultation, you trust the doctor, so you share. But that—that's your expectation. right? you're sharing with that doctor, you want the doctor to treat you. You don't want the doctor to go on TV and say, "Hey, patient Louisa has that." Look, let, let's let's check what what this patient has. You also don't want your your doctor to use your pictures uh, in in a law in a in a medical journal. You, you want you, that info that sensitive information has a specific uh, place and time to be in. So when we think about uh, also training those models, and, and it, it's it's uh, a It's not decided yet. And, so, we all, our public information. So, some people, mainly from the US uh, literature and, and profession, will say it's public, right? So, you, you just post it there. Now, anyone can go there grab it and use it for the, the good of humanity. They are building, the, they are saving humanity with those, that system. But tell me did, did, when you po- let's say you posted a, a picture with a in a bikini or you were you were in insatisfied with your job so you were renting on Facebook and you, you said personal information and you were in a different specific emotional state if you would you expect would you do the same if you knew it was it was it was being scraped to train an ai model would you behave the same so if you knew it's not only for for that context that social network with with maybe not even a low number no, no followers or very low number of followers if you knew it was going to train an ai model and be potentially uh out being output by the model for someone in the other side of the world would you have posted that i think that's that's one of the challenges of privacy that nuance that it's about time so sometimes the time frame is long so what you're doing here, it's, it's their harm will be later or context and context matters and I think when you talk about those attacks, right, it's about linking. So one context here, another context. Separated, they don't, they don't look very dangerous, they don't look harmful, they don't look invasive, but, but we put everything together. So I, I, I like to discuss I think the, the idea of AI and the whole at least the large language models how they are trained with the whole uh, scraping just scrape anything you find and it will fine. And it. it looks like it will not be like that for long at least uh, g- taking a look at the lawsuits and uh, current discussions it looks like uh, the rules are going to change but I, I love that and the terminology from from your perspective from an engineering perspective is the, the privacy attack and from a more I would say legal slash theoretical approach would be the, the privacy as contextual integrity the idea that uh, privacy is is always attached to a certain context, a certain person in a certain time in a certain context in a certain place, and when you move that and it sometimes delicate, right? It's a, it's a balance, and I, and I love your gesture so That's that's the uh, I know you can know that that Catherine is a journalist because she's so communicative. Uh, yeah, so so I love I love the the bridge with the, the attacks and the contextual integrity, and, and I think it, it's it's interesting to think about AI too.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think um, I think Nissenbaum's work is so uh, I think reading it as a technologist, you're just blown away because we don't often think about how I think this really uh, impacted my thinking of what's the privacy that we expect in the real world when we interact And is that what we're actually modeling when we start programming things? And most often we're not. And sometimes there's not even a way. I've been thinking a lot about even how we build the internet. And there's not even a good way for us to, like, if I mail you a postcard um, or a letter, um, it's more private than any way I can figure out how to message you via the internet. And I've been thinking a lot about this of like, that we didn't really design things with a lot of this built in. And um, yeah, it's a it's a hard problem. It's a hard problem and it's an exciting problem. I think it's human first design is um, a lot harder than it looks and maybe as a feature that we can push via privacy. And we're uh, almost,
0: the time is almost uh, finishing for our talk. And I want to open for questions. So uh, please, so, now write your questions in the chat if you have specific questions we'll i think we'll take one, two. Let's see how much time we have. And uh, also, if you're interested in reading uh, Practical Data Privacy, please, after this session finishes, comment here on on this session. You can still comment. So let us know. We will have we have three, right, Catherine? You have three uh, e-books to uh, the, the editors as separated for this session. So if you're interested in getting a free ebook, get, uh, Practical Data Privacy, please uh, after we finish the session comment and let me know that you're interested. And we are going to select uh, the, the three, let's say the three first people that, that, that tell they are interested. <laughs> let's see, it's, it's a, I, I want to be fair and I'm obsessed with fairness. I don't want to say that we are going to select. So the three first people that uh, say, after this session finishes, the three first people that comment that they're interested, they will they will get the, the uh, free copies. So let's see some of the questions. So Denise asked, Catherine, how do you reconcile the right to be forgotten or the CA the California DELETE Act with AI's ability to learn data that is trained on. Yeah. Uh, from an engineering perspective, can the data be truly be deleted? Very interesting question.
1: Yeah, I, I don't think that it can. So there's been some interesting people that researchers that have been working on thinking through this problem is like, is there a way for us to during the learning process to attribute particular, let's say, changes in, in the weights or something like this to particular learning? And can we therefore then essentially cancel it out in any which way? I haven't yet seen like a compelling large scale use of it. A lot of people are saying like, okay, well, let's train with differential privacy. But as I mentioned earlier, I think that's kind of a maybe situation. Um, One thing that maybe would change it is to be, be training more often and more actively and to maybe also have smaller models. But we haven't yet figured out how to distill the knowledge learned in, let's say, a massive many, many billion parameter model into a smaller model. Um, But I do have faith that that will start to happen and that we'll be able to maybe not distill all the information, because that's maybe also part of the problem, um, is overfitting and over-memorization. And that maybe as we trim these models down, then we're also able to add better protections for individuals. But it's, at this point in time, an extremely active area of research that we're I would argue you would have to delete the machine learning artifact, um, particularly if a person has been overexposed. So let's say that the person is a super user or something like this, Um, the impact or an outlier in any way, the impact that they would have had on the training would have been significant. And um, there's no real way yet for us to accurately remove that information from the model.
0: And, And so, and one more question by Andrew. Andrew is asking, Okay. Does Catherine have a view on the usage of AI and facial recognition in retail?
1: Yeah, that's terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> I do think, like, too, that um, so, like, there's other ways that retail also uses, um, like, your, your mobile phone, um, different types of signals of mobile phones to do tracking over time. Um, that's why I have a very particular type of mobile phone. Um, anyways, but the, the point is, is that, um, what I wonder is like, is this actually what we're like, what are we trying to do here? Like, are we achieving, I think there's a lot of sales marketing in selling computer vision or facial recognition as a way to solve a problem where there is not a problem. And so I, again, ask ourselves, it's like, what are we, are we actually trying to guess the age, race, gender, so that we can show them different clothes? And if so, is that actually what they want to be shown? And um, yeah, back to context. If they knew that we were trying to guess those things and show them different clothes, would they like? Would they ever come back? <laughs> I don't know.
0: So thank you so much, Catherine, for joining this session. So yeah, I see we will have... So it will... the The, the, the book... Competition didn't start yet. Remember, it's only when we I saw many people wrote oh. I'm interested. So it's only when it finishes. So I want to be. That's what that's the rule. So when we, oh. when I press end, you can write I'm interested. Uh, I want to thank you so much, Catherine, for joining me. And you see that there are more questions, but I, I think uh, I don't want to, to get more of your time. Uh, I, do you want to have a last uh, a closing uh, sentence or, or message to the audience? Uh, of course, everybody, please check out Catherine's book. Uh, Practical data privacy um, here in her hand.
1: It's not too big. <laughs> it's not definitely easy.
0: very easy to read. You see how she communicates, and she is, you you can read the books thinking about her laugh and her gestures. She's really a great power. Really, I told you since the first time we met, I told you that you're a great communicator, and the book shows that it's really easy and digestible and, and nice, and you'll have, uh, it will be a, a great time reading. Okay. So do you want to, to close with with some uh, final message to the audience?
1: Yeah, I mean, I hope that you, uh, particularly like if you're in the more in the legal side, I hope that you maybe find and inspire some engineers um, at your organization that want to try out some privacy engineering. And um, I, I have a newsletter, but it's mainly for nerds. Um, it's on probably private.com um, where I've also been interviewing some people about privacy engineering. So if you are technical, if you know anybody technical is probably more fit for that audience but um, I would love to to stay in touch and keep on uh, fighting the good fight of privacy. And
0: people can find you on on LinkedIn. you're mainly on LinkedIn and Twitter, right?
1: Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. I don't use Twitter much since the whole privacy team quit. That was kind of the end for me. <laughs>
0: Please follow Catherine on LinkedIn. And thank you so much. And and if you want to get, thank you for the audience for joining and for being so active and asking questions. And as always, I'm happy that you joined this session. And subscribe to the Privacy Whisperer to read the weekly analysis on what's wrong with tech and how we can make it better. And to know about the next event. So thank you very much and have everyone a great day. Bye bye. Thank you, Luisa.